I call it a safety culture problem where we want to mitigate risk to the point where there's no risk, complete risk aversion. If you want to be optimally protected, you really should get a booster. The probability of something happen is less important now than the possibility it will happen. At the inaugural conference of the Brownstone Institute, we sat down with Dr. Stephen Templeton, an associate professor of immunology and microbiology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Safety culture and mass germophobia have taken over society, he says, and it could have devastating consequences down the line, just like the overuse of antibiotics. I didn't want to look back on this and say that I violated my conscience and didn't speak up when someone really needed to. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Dr. Steve Templeton, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Great to be here. Steve, you've been an immunologist for a number of years, and you've been watching some very interesting changes in society over the last few and have been documenting them. Before we start with all that, Tell me like, about your work, your, your acumen in the field of immunology. Well, I was trained um, in, at the University of Iowa doing some viral immunology, actually with a, a model coronavirus, back when no one cared about those things. Um, that changed in 2003 when SARS-1 came out. And there's a lot more interest, obviously, and a lot more interest now, obviously. Um, after that, I went to the government, worked for the CDC for about four years um, at NIOSH, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Research Institute. There I got into doing fungal exposures and inhalation models, you know, studying aerosols and things like that. That was in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. There was a lot of interest in that type of research, so a lot of lung um, inhalation, inflammation, that type of thing. And then um, 10 years ago I came to the Indiana University. Um, I do infectious disease research, mainly with opportunistic infection that's a fungal infection, aspergillosis. So I have a hand in a lot of different areas and experience in a lot of different areas. So basically infection is your is the kind of your key research area. Right. The immunology of, of infectious disease in, in multiple areas, yeah. And of course, you know, as all of us were, you basically watched coronavirus and the response to coronavirus kind of unfold in, in America and around the world. When did you first notice that something was amiss? You started getting, having questions in your mind. Well, I think the first week when, uh, you know, it was March 12th, 13th, when there was really a, a spike in New York City and other places were deciding what to do about that. Um, there were some cases in Washington, um, they started to shut down. I had a sister there in Seattle that was telling me all about how that situation was developing. I was very concerned that there was a lot of fear that was going to drive the, the response. And, and I could see this at the local level as well. And uh, I had this sort of feeling that, um, based on just my basic understanding, that this was already something that couldn't be fully suppressed. But I felt like the public wasn't buying that, that they, they thought that we could basically stop this. Um, and we had a lot more control over it than we did. And so I became very concerned that this would become a very self-destructive response. And I began to sort of take local actions to try to keep schools open and things like that. Hmm. That obviously didn't work very well. So I kind of got involved in, in, in the type of messaging to, which I felt was directed at trying to relieve fears of, of local local people and um, officials and trying to take the pressure off of them. This expectation that they had this control over what was going to happen um, is a tremendous amount of 
pressure on them. So this is really interesting. You know, you mentioned you were working to try to stop school closures because, you know, you're not approaching this just as a scientist, but also as a father with, with kids in schools. Well, I mean, I'm like a lot of people active on social media and I started to see the, the responses that p local people were having. Um, some of these, you know, very educated people, some of these are teachers and um, I felt like it was not reflective of what was really happening and what, what we knew at the time. Even though that was very incomplete, I really didn't want to hurt children because we did know at the time that children weren't um, suspected, affected by severe disease as much as older folks and people with comorbidities. So I thought that that would be ultimately harmful to close schools precipitously because then you wouldn't know when to open them um, and when to come out of that kind of shutdown situation. So initially our local district was hesitant to close down, which I praised, and, um, but obviously the state um, gave them no choice to shut down just a few days after that. So that was kind of what I focused on. And then because of my background, local journalists became interested and asked me for my opinions and um, I gave them. And um, at the time they weren't very controversial actually. Um, Early on, what were these opinions that weren't controversial and became controversial? Well, just the idea that uh, this is something that couldn't necessarily be completely managed or stopped. And, I, and that the, the public had a expectation that it could just by staying home, by not going out and not interacting with other people, you obviously right, break the chain of, of infection. And that um, makes sense to a lot of people. Um, the problem is it's not sustainable. It's not something that everyone could do because some people have jobs where they have to interact with others. Working class people can't work remotely. So the idea that these were sustainable, I think, was, was something that people were not, not really accepting. And um, I tried to bring that to the attention of, of the local folks and, if any, mixed results. At some point, um, you started becoming more vocal, like outside of just the, the kind of local local sphere and this is already you're getting more information there's more there's now been uh, data that has been gathered on how this virus functions and populate in different places and different group among different groups of people of course the vaccines come on the scene um, at some point so you're you're somehow getting more active you're starting to voice your opinion you're starting to write uh, again how, how does this all transpire yeah so um, I wrote a series of articles for the local newspaper to kind of put out a little bit different perspective of what I was seeing in the, in the news media, um, which was very, you know, catastrophic type stuff. I couldn't believe the, the, the level of negativity, and that's been shown in, you know, in the U.S. news especially is more negative than anywhere else in the world on this pandemic coverage, um, which is, I think, very interesting. So I tried to counteract some of that. And um, so I wrote a series of articles for the local paper and, you know, I would get positive feedback from some people um, that were kind of like, you know, I agree with you, but don't tell anybody type thing. And, um, and then I would get vocal negative feedback from some people. And I wrote one article criticizing the state response because there were tendency of leaders to blame the public for the spread of the virus within their states. And this was all sort of a behavior driven um, pandemic. It could be contained if we just did the right things, if we listened to the experts, that type of thing. My point in the article that I wrote was, you know, this is 
these respiratory viruses we cannot avoid. And uh, it's, it's the price of doing things that humans do. It's the price of being human was the title of the article. And that one didn't necessarily go over well because I did mention that there were things that people thought would have a, a serious positive effect in containing the um, pandemic, like universal masking. And the evidence, um, based on what I had seen prior to 2020, was very mixed in terms of the confidence in universal masking to have a significant effect on pandemic spread. And, um, but that was not being acknowledged at all. Um, it had become very um, controversial to say anything about that. But I did mention there are very limited things we can do, and we have to kind of accept that. Um, we can't suspend human activities. And uh, so I, I was very proud of, of that because I think that really kind of the crux of the problem, um, part of the blaming and shaming, and I wanted that to stop. And I, I, began, I became more involved in you know, local school advisory committee and things like that. And um, I had to prepare some presentations, and so I prepared a presentation about universal masking. I prepared one about schools, um, about children, the risk, the low risks to children. And so I did a lot of research for those presentations and I decided this is actually pretty interesting stuff and I found like other people would find that interesting. So um, I started the Substack site with that in mind. So the very first few uh, posts that I had on that Substack site were sort of derived from those presentations that mm. I gave. They ended up being a lot more well-received than I could have even um, imagined. So this is, of course, the Substack fear of a microbial planet that you're talking uh -huh. about. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is very, very interesting angle. You know, I've had a number of, I've been interviewing a number of people on related issues here on the show. And, but this particular angle, I, I we haven't really discussed. I mean, basically your your position is basically, there isn't much we can do to stop the spread of the virus and nor do we necessarily even want to do that across all of society i mean is do i am i reading that correctly well obviously if we could find a way to you know do something magically we could stop it but um at this point you know i mean one of the things that i think would work is improving ventilation and every building if you could sort of do that very easily which um, you know there are supportable air cleaners and things like that and I think those are useful in places like um, assisted living facilities and um, other places where you have a lot of vulnerable people and so um, I'm all for targeted interventions I think that's probably the best option for um, vulnerable people is um, increasing the ventilation this is an airborne virus there's lots of evidence of that now surfaces are not major route of transmission so but you know these things are how much you can change in every single indoor space you're always going to go into a different indoor space that is less ventilated at some point obviously people who are living in poverty or you know lower income families disadvantaged people aren't going to have access to buildings that are you know have advanced ventilation things like that so that's one solution that's for, for targeted response or mitigation, but in terms of a universal application, it's not necessarily something that's gonna be done um, as some people are proposing. Yeah, I mean, your message basically has been like, you know, there's nothing we can do about this thing going through society. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the vaccine seems to limit disease, uh, severity of disease, and that's very important, again, in vulnerable populations. 
Um, but the whole efficacy of the vaccine for transmission and preventing mild infections, it's, it doesn't have this sort of sterilizing effect um, that people expected. So even vaccinated individuals are going to have, at some point, um, a coronavirus infection as much as they do with the other coronaviruses which are currently in circulation that's going to always be around. So you know you talked about a lot of that that could strike fear into the hearts of many. Right. I try to give the message that's kind of the other way around whereas you know if there's something you don't have control over that should actually be reassuring because you know, you should be able to let go of that need for control if you don't have that. But so this is so interesting because you're basically, you, you know, this in, in society and through the, me through the messaging from the government and other places, it's almost like we've created an expectation that this can and should be controlled. Mm -hmm. And whereas you're saying the reality is it, it really can't. So, you know, the, the types of pressure that fee people are feeling, which you mentioned earlier, are, are kind of self-inflicted. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, <laughs> it's like we've, you're saying we've been heading in a very, very wrong direction here. So, you know, how do we right the ship here? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it, it's for some people, it seems to be a moral failing when you get an infection. And that's just really a horrible way to look at it. Again, it's just as humans, we are going to get respiratory viruses as social and our social interactions, which are necessary for our functioning as human beings. We're going to give each other viruses, and it's not something that should be blamed or a suggestion that it can be completely cut out for long periods of time. Obviously, this has gone on for a lot longer than anyone expected, and I think that validates that, that way of thinking. You know, so your, your uh, blog Substack, it's called uh, Fear of a Microbial Planet. Um, and the thing is, you know, you, you talk about things like, you know, we, we actually kind of need to get infected by things as human beings as part of our, you know, I guess growth or how, as part of our process of our immune system actually being figuring out how to function properly in the environment that it's in, right? Right, sure. So in, in the Spanish flu pandemic, for instance, one of the reasons that older folks were less susceptible, even though they might be, you know, in poorer health, was thought to be because there was another influenza pandemic in 1890 mm -hmm. um, and uh, they had this you know what we call heterologous immunity or cross mm -hmm. immunity um, that gave them some protection or just enough to keep them from getting severe disease and uh, the younger people didn't have that that combined with the fact that you had um, maybe for the first time in history this sort of mass movement of people around the world as a result of the end of the World War One was sort of a perfect storm of conditions for that that pandemic. But um, there was a, a strain that circulated earlier of, of flu also um, before the major waves of that pandemic that gave some people immunity as well. The whole idea of the immune system being in you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is definitely true. Other than someone who is a vulnerable person who has a, a higher risk of severe disease. Um, for healthy people, it's not something that, that we should think about um, because naturally these exposures do make us protected to other, potentially other viruses that may be worse in the future. Well, you know, a couple of things I learned recently, and just get you to comment on them. One of them is that people who have had SARS-1, there's some cross-immunity to SARS-2. I remember reading about that. And two, 
um, I think I just heard about this last night, that there are a few people left who are around during the first, the Spanish flu pandemic, mm -hmm. right, who have, and I think they somehow tested and they found that, that they actually have immunity, some cross immunity to the flu as we speak, like the immunity lasted a hundred years yeah. or something of this, to this extent. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, the original um, 1918 strain is still circulating. I mean, it's obviously not as severe, um, doesn't cause as severe disease as it, as it did, but over time, things be it becomes less virulent, less severe disease causing. And the same thing will happen with SARS-CoV-2. It's just um, obviously a longer process than many people envisioned or would like to admit was going to happen. So the, the virus will be with us, but you know, you've talked about how fear is, has been driving public policy. Yeah. And that at the same time, I think public policy has been driving fear kind of goes in both directions. And so again, I guess the question is, how do we write the ship? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very difficult question for me to answer, but I think some of the goals of the, my fear of a microbial planet substack site is to kind of get people out of this safety culture type thinking, and which I think there are gonna be some lingering, you know, I guess germophobia is a word for it that will be kind of built up that may need to be alleviated. Um, uh, because you start hearing people talking about, you know, if we can improve the ventilation of buildings, you know, we'll never get respiratory virus infections. Or, you know, how do we avoid just basic colds and things like that? And uh, and I don't think that that's quite the, the right way of looking at things. It's, it's not just about the pandemic, but just about kind of the, the idea of this sort of mass germophobia, which I'm kind of seeing is, is actually, it goes back to times when we've sort of overreacted um, or at least developed a new technology and then maybe took it too far, like antibiotics being overused and not thinking at all that there was a downside to that. Um, you know, I can find articles from late 40s, early 50s, where journalists were saying, you know, you're gonna put antibiotics in toothpaste and um, lipstick and things like that. There's no limit to the things that we can put antibiotics in. No downside, you know, obviously food and agriculture, animal growth is enhanced by antibiotics. We all know this. So it took a while to realize that there might be a downside to those things. And I think that the idea that there are trade-offs trade to any sort of intervention is something that's been lost, um, particularly in the last you know year and a half. Yes, now I mean absolutely. I can't. I keep thinking when I look out at how we seem to be approaching these the, the pandemic as a society. You know, especially with the lockdowns question, for example. Mm -hmm. Like there's, you know, this inordinate focus on the potential harms of of the virus, even you know arguably highly exaggerated, especially in certain populations, and then not a ton of thought to the, you know, arguably massive collateral damage, mm -hmm. I think, which we're already being able to see demonstrated. It's just, it's kind of an unbelievable thing to watch. Yeah, and that's part of the, you know, what I call a safety culture problem, where we um, want to mitigate risk of something that's very pressing and something that's very um, publicized to the point of ignoring the risks of other things. And I have one of my posts likens this to kind of an autoimmune disease in, in a person. You want to have a balance 
of a response to an infectious disease, right? But you don't want to go too far because then if you go too far, you start destroying your own tissues. And um, I feel as if that's very analogous to how we handle the pandemic response in a way that was self-destructive. You know, if we were considering our country as an organism as a whole, you know, there was some collateral damage from overreactions much like an immune response. And this is really fascinating because uh, in the coddling of an American mind, uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukinoff, they, they kind of, I guess, compare the preventing children or from being able to, to experience, you know, difficult situations where they have to problem solve something to, to not training an immune system. I mean, roughly, that's my re recollection. It's been a while sure. since I read it. But, I mean, almost ironic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that this is what they talked about a few years back. Yeah, it seems like many of these things uh, that used to be um, kind of taken for granted or, or once common knowledge, the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger type thinking has eroded to the point where it's, and, and they do talk about this in the book, you know, the what doesn't kill you makes you weaker or something like that, is they've, they've sort of turned it on its head. And I feel like that's very appropriate. Um, they're both analogies that are you know, the immune system and then versus raising a child to be able to handle adversity and um, young adults to be able to handle different points of view. Um, those challenges are very important. Um, the immune system has to be challenged with um, microorganisms, otherwise it, uh, it doesn't know how to function. You can raise mice completely germ-free in the laboratory and they don't their immune responses don't develop the same way. So we're the same way. We have to figure out how to live in that sort of balance of, of being in sort of microbial world, not inviting too many serious infections that will cause chronic illness or death, but at the same time, not going too far and trying to eliminate sort of the normal course of, of microbial exposures and infections that, that people get. Well, something that, you know, I just, occurred to me that, you know, something that I watched kind of appear on the scene and become very prevalent is the these, uh, you know, antibacterial wipes, right? And like everything antibacterial. You know, what I, I kept thinking, you know, with, with my background in biology, like, aren't we kind of driving like, you know, the sort of the, the re resistance strains of things here, you know, and sort of, in, faster than what happened normally, right? And so what, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, there's studies where, um, you know, if you've heard of triclosan, which for a while was in everything, the antibacterial soap, um, they would advertise this contains triclosan. Mm. And now I think it's being banned in some countries. I'm not sure if it's banned here or not. I don't think it is. But uh, I remember it was in everything. I mean, they were even putting it in toys for a while, like in the, um, you know, just like a, a layer of some antibacterial residue on toys, you know. And I always thought that was not probably the right way to think about it. And they've done some studies now where they have shown that children with triclosan, they can find it in their bloodstream um, if they have been exposed to larger amounts of it. Um, they're also more likely, and this is just the correlation, but they're more likely to have you know, asthma, allergies, things like that, mm. if they're exposed to more levels. That suggests that they have a home environment that is very, um, where they're exposed to a lot of these type of antimicrobials. And um, again, this sort of, it's not a, a true causation type thing, but they've done experimental studies with these type of things as well. And this, they do disrupt you know, gut microbiota and, and uh, 
and could have potential health consequences. Um, so that's definitely a very interesting area of, uh, of research that, that I, I, I follow. So let's, let's talk about the current state of, you know, I guess the, the immune system vis-a-vis COVID-19 and given and the literature that's out there, which I know you, you pour through. Yeah. Um, wh- where are we at right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, a tough question. We know that the natural immunity is very strong if you recover from an infection up to the time that we can measure anyone who's been infected. Um, they have an immune response that will protect them, um, especially from not only reinfection, but a severe reinfection. There are studies with SARS-1 that individuals who recovered from SARS-1 still have immunity to SARS-1, but also would protect them from SARS-CoV-2 as well, um, give them some protection. Um, There are some individuals who have cross-immunity, possibly from other viruses. It's difficult to say which viruses um, that may protect them from severe disease as well. But the idea that these are completely sterilizing uh, immunity is it's not something that is long term particularly in individuals who are have these comorbidities they tend to you know have less durable responses and the vaccine you know appears to work for vaccines they seem to work for um, limiting severity of disease but then it's less clear how durable those immune responses are and um, um, obviously there's um, breakthrough infections with with vaccinated individuals and and I think you have a lot of politiz- politicization of that as well. Mm. Um, people on different sides, you know, trying to say, you know, this means they, they work and we still have to, you know, force individuals to have vaccinations. And people who aren't, who are opposed say, you know, he promised it was going to be, you know, 95% effective. You know, what did that mean as clearly as some question of whether that initial press releases were, were accurate. I think that's you know, those criticisms are, are, are valid. Well, because, you know, how could you know how effective something that was de- developed so quickly would be? I mean, that, that is the question, right? Right, and it's, yeah. even in, in a large population, even in a study, you're gonna miss some things. Obviously, it's a press release, so they wanna report that it works. Science doesn't move as quickly as people want it to, and that's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. So I keep seeing uh, pop up in my Twitter feeds, um, where I know where you and I are, are have been watching each other's feeds, mm-hmm. um, but I keep seeing in the, I guess the, the trending or recommended or something like that, um, uh, fact checkers say that vaccine immunity is better than natural immunity. I keep seeing that popping up. Everything I've seen up to now, and I'm not, of course, not being expert, tells me otherwise. What do you think? Well, I mean, that's also a difficult question because, again, we're still assessing how how long-term immunity develops. There are different vaccines. There are individuals who respond differently to the vaccine. Um, there are individuals with previous immunity to different infections, previous immunity to SARS-CoV-2. Um, now they're mixing and matching vaccinations. This is all these things sort of complicate the story a little bit, right? Um, I do know generally natural immunity is durable for several reasons, and one of them is because the route of infection is the route that would provide the most protection against a reinfection. That's a direct introduction of virus into the lungs. You have a local response in the lungs, and there are tissue specific immune responses that you don't necessarily get when you inject a vaccine into somebody's arm. So these are all things that are not, were not controversial 
in you know 2019 and that's the reason why people are trying to improve vaccines and you know develop inhalable vaccines um, vaccines that have attenuated viruses so there will be some replication in the airways like with the flu there's a flu mist vaccine that does some of this and that you inhale you know the other problem is that viral infections tend to leave kind of what we call an antigen reservoir so there are some expression of proteins and it really isn't i don't think it's entirely clear how this happens but you've heard obviously that people who are test positive can test positive for a very long time um, even when they're not symptomatic they're not infected they can't transmit it to other people and that's interesting because i think that signifies that there is some sort of activity that may be stimulating the immune response to develop a strong memory um, you just don't get that with uh, the vaccine. There's a transient spike in the expression hmm. of the spike protein in, in the muscle cells. There's probably some spread you know, through the lymph nodes and maybe blood vessels, but then it gets cleared within a few days. So it's a trade-off. I mean, obviously, if you have a, a natural infection, some individuals are going to have collateral damage. I mean, they're going to have... Um, you know, long-term effects. We don't really understand those either. Um, if you infect hundreds of millions of people, you're going to have a significant number of them have some very odd things happen. Um, sometimes people are going to have odd things happen that aren't related to being infected or being vaccinated. It's just a matter of coincidence. Um, so sorting through all of that is very, very complicated and, and, and difficult. And it's I think it's necessary to not, you know, jump to conclusions based on what we want to see or what we want to hear. You had mentioned that uh, you feel children are not nearly as vulnerable as other groups. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so this is something I was always thought was shocking to me, how people always just assumed that schools were going to be this major driver of community spread and but early on children weren't seemed to be affected hardly at all so um, until widespread testing became available so one of the early studies was in, in iceland um, i don't know if you recall this but um, where they actually sequenced um, viruses from individuals if you could sequence a virus from multiple individuals you can actually tell what direction infection happened even in a, within a family um, because there's a set mutation rate in the virus. So one of the things the invest, pr a primary investigator, principal investigator said of that study is that they couldn't, couldn't find an example of where the mutation went from suggested any sort of transmission from ch children to adults, um, in, even in the 1800 cases that they had. So um, I felt like that was a really interesting finding and it didn't seem to suggest with other things that, that children were really going to be important to restrict in any way. Um, there was a study that came out of South Korea that suggested that children were, could spread as well as adults, and that was in you know, summer of 2020, perhaps. Um, and uh, that was highly publicized. I mean, New York Times article on it, and many people within my own community were citing that study and one of the things i remember discussing uh, with my wife who's in public health is you know how did they know that the children were transmitting they weren't sequencing the virus like they did in the iceland study and uh, later on it came out that they admitted they could not d define what direction transmission was happening with within their study so they had to issue a correction also in the new york times a month later um, 
But the damage had already been done. Schools had been closed. People had decided to go remote. And this obviously affected different populations differently. Obviously, people would tell me, you know, your kids are going to be fine. And I would say, well, I know that. But it's not just about my kids, because I live in an area where there's a lot of poverty and there are a lot of children who I would say school is the safest place for them to be. And, and uh, when they're deprived of that, um, they will suffer. Um, remote learning in that population um, doesn't work as well as it does with uh, children of uh, of means. My kids were fine, but you could tell when they would get online that there were lots of kids that were not in, in those class, you know, virtual classrooms. Um, I talked to some social workers that work with children in our area, and my wife did as well. And uh, all of them were kind of horrified at how this was affecting children. One told me that she had to spend a lot of time going and specifically trying to set up the Wi-Fi and making sure that they, I mean, they ended up kind of policing that um, and trying to make sure children had connections. And, and it was with mixed results with so many kids that were not able to engage in remote learning in the way that it was designed. And, and now I've been told by people who are running camps and other teachers that children are way behind and studies have shown, you know, in some places, four or five, six months behind in their education. And uh, my point is that part was preventable. The scope of the pandemic, you know, maybe the timing, you can delay these things the way that things are spread. But um, ultimately, how we respond, we have control over that. And I feel like as far as kids go, we, we failed. We failed. Well, and there's also an element to what you just told me, which is interesting, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is that there's like a disproportionate cost to certain groups of people in society and a less, much lesser cost, um, even though, you know, you, to, to your kids, like you said, there's probably a cost, you know, distance that, that remote learning isn't the same as in-person learning, but it was not nearly at the same scale. It sounds like that's what you're saying. Right. I mean, uh, you know, they're... Their dad is a scientist, right? So I, I got a microscope from work and um, we looked at tissue slides that the, the medical students look at. And um, I had them collect water from lakes and ponds and things like that and test it for bacteria. And for a while, while things were shut down, we'd have like Science Friday. And, you know, I'm fully aware that nobody else had that experience probably in, in my area. And uh, the whole time I tried to dispel some of the things that they were hearing in their minds. Um, I think I was very successful with that. Um, but I, I, I could see in other children, their friends, um, their friends' parents, there was a lot of fear. And um, even though I knew these people in person, I had sort of a minimal effect on a lot of that, which it's unfortunate. You know, okay, so this is, you're, you're a very thoughtful, careful person, you know, as you're speaking to me, you know, uh, I, I can see that, right? And I guess, you know, probably you were sharing your, what, what you figured out, your, you know, your information based on your ex expertise to some extent and then the research that you had done in, in a similar way. And um, so, what, you know, what was the reaction of your community and then I guess also of your peers to doing this? Yeah, so it was such a, you know, cognitive dissonance from what people were hearing when they were isolated and watching the news and reading articles and it was the coverage was so negative and so always taking the 
the worst case scenario and presenting it in a way that it was more likely to happen than it really was likely to happen. And so talking to people in the community, I got that sense that it's not that they wanted to dismiss what I was saying, but it was so different from what they were seeing and hearing, they just couldn't really believe it. It was frustrating. It was incredibly frustrating. Trying to get communities to um, help one another, churches, things like that. Um, this is the time, I said, you know, if there is a time to help people, this is it, because people need it. But the whole mandated, and if you're responsible, you'll stay away from people. You will work remotely. Those are things that are now, they're noble, you know, that really hurt sort of local efforts. Um, and I think the, the gap between individuals and communities like mine increased even, even more. Um, and, you know, this happened on a scale everywhere. I, I just, I'm talking about my own experience, but I know that there were individuals in many other places that tried to draw attention to these things. And, and uh, unfortunately, there were mixed results there too, from my understanding. And what about your peers? How has been the response from, you know, people you've, you've worked with? Yeah, well, a lot of, of my fellow scientists don't, you know, they don't know I'm involved in this. <laughs> the ones on Twitter do. Um, and, you know, I've been unfollowed by some of them. Um, but um, I didn't want to look back on this and say that I, I, I violated my conscience and didn't speak up when, it, when someone really needed to. Um, and I think I'll be able to say that. And that's actually more important than making a, a, a difference. I mean, which it should be because, you know, as I've mentioned several times, I'm not sure how much of a difference I personally have made. But it was the, for me, it's the, the fact that I made the effort and I, and I spoke up when I felt like I had to. Well, and so this is, I mean, this is the obvious question. There's so many people out there that either are not taking a position, people who are familiar with the data, uh, or are assuming a very opposite position, or the, you know, kind of the conventional position. The position seems to be everyone needs to be vaccinated and mm -hmm. mandating that is, is legitimate and reasonable. Yeah. Um, why is that? I think that people believe, and this is, I mean, a fair thing to believe, that communicating nuance is hard to the public. I believe it's necessary, but there's some people who don't believe that. Um, they think it's more important to have as many people vaccinated as possible than to even think about individuals claiming or testing them to see if they have protective immunity from a natural infection. So that's simpler, you know? I mean, the point is to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Let's not worry about who's recovered. Um, and then the mandates are obviously something that's controversial. And I believe a lot of scientists, you know, don't don't believe that these things should be mandated, especially for children. I mean, that these are political questions, not necessarily scientific ones. But scientists are human too, so we get involved in politics. We can't help it. Um, everything we do is, is affected by that. Well, so let's talk, you know, you've of course talked about the politicization. I think you've written specifically on this mm -hmm. topic. Um, just tell me your thoughts on this and broadly speaking, like what, what happened? If you go back and look at everything that was published before 2020 and come to this completely different conclusion that you would if you read the things that were publi published later on in 2020 about masks or the ability of lockdowns to stop spread indefinitely or long-term lockdowns 
not having devastating collateral damage, that type of thing. Then you realize how politicized this really has become um, because the idea of talking about the trade-offs of any of these interventions, that's the part that people think, you know, is beyond the pale. You can't talk about the trade-offs because we're in a crisis right now. You can't say, you know, this has some limited effect or it's not proven or, you know, we have to just do these things because they might help, because they're a symbol that we're all in this together, that type of thing. It's kind of a, a, an amplifying effect where we go from one thing as, as just one possible tool that we don't really understand if it works or not, to this thing as a moral obligation that we have that we must force two-year-olds to wear masks. There is no evidence to support that. And just evidence just becomes a, a tool for a, a political argument. The way that many of these things have been politicized has been frustrating, infuriating, and but also fascinating in, in sort of psychology, human psychology sense. And yeah, although I'm an immunologist, the way that this has sort of developed and with large populations thinking all one way and migrating to something else very quickly, faster than science backs up is very fascinating to me. What's driving that? Um, fear and then also the need to be a part of some sort of collective action. I think people are very interested in, in, in banding together and fighting. They, they use this war analogy. I think the people who are very much in favor of mitigation and um, shutdowns and things like that, they think, you know, we all need to band together like we're fighting a common enemy. Um, and um, I don't really like that analogy as well as, as, as thinking more about a pandemic as a natural disaster. Um, you don't hear politicians say when there's a hurricane, you know, if we all work together, we can stop this hurricane. Um, you have to prepare for it, yes. Um, you have to make sure that the damage isn't as bad as it could be. Um, but it's just something that has to be survived and endured. And uh, I believe that was the case here, and it was not mm. um, how people looked at it. They, they looked at it more of a, a war-type war footing, you know, and that's what they wanted it to be. So this is, there's an interesting element to me here as we, as we finish up. You know, it's almost like uh, there's this lack of an appetite for telling people this is something you're going to have to endure. Yeah, I mean, if you were an elected official or an appointed public health official, there's a certain amount of what does the community expect of me? Um, and I think... That's where the safety culture comes in. I think many of these individuals think, rightly so, that the public expects them to give them solid steps of everything they can do to completely avoid becoming infected. And uh, their ability to actually do that was obviously limited, um, but they were willing to sell an illusion that people wanted um, because that was the way to placate them really the public but then you got to pay the piper right i mean and that's you know something that's going to be discussed for a long time but um, i don't blame any individuals i don't want to single out you know one or two people who are in charge of of how this response was handled um, i really think that um, some of it was human nature some of it was the point that we're at in in our culture right now um, where we want to mitigate risk to the point where there's no risk, um, complete risk aversion, confusing risks with hazards. You know, with a risk, there's a possibility for reward, but we don't use the term risk like that anymore. 
we more use it like a hazard, something that's absolutely you know dangerous. Um, the probability of something happen is less important now than the possibility it will happen, and the possibility is is reason enough to to act, even if there's a trade-off. So I think it's a combination of human nature plus I think where we're at right now in in society, I guess. Well, Dr. Steve Templeton, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks. Great to be here.